Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two on AI and radiology. And I left off last time mentioning radiomics, and these days it seems that I can look at a journal that doesn't have three radiomics article. And it's not pancreas, but it's liver and kidneys and lungs. And radiomics is really one of the hottest topics. And what is radiomics? It's the high throughput extraction analysis of quantitative features from medical images. Extraction of quantifiable imaging markers based on tumor signal, intensity, shape, and texture. And application of these imaging markers for disease diagnosis and prognostication. That seems almost too good to be true. Well, when you think about it, tumors are spatially heterogeneous structures. Heterogeneity can be quantified on image data and what we do with radiomics is convert this imaging data into high-dimensional mineable feature space. A good quote by Gary Choi, radiomics is a process designed to extract a large number of quantitative features from radiology images. That's very important because what we're trying to say really is there's a lot of information inside the images and we can extract that information to improve diagnostic, prognostic and predictive accuracy. Radiomic signatures have been demonstrated to reflect intratumoral heterogeneity and to be associated with gene expression profiles, both of which can serve as important prognostic factors. And again, you can see that's like basically saying with radiomics, we're looking at fingerprints of a tumor or some pathology, and we can use those fingerprints to separate different processes and understand them better. Now, I'm not going to give you a tutorial on radiomics. That may be something for another day. But radiomics features can be classified into first order, shape, second order, and higher order statistical outputs. First order is distribution of values of individual voxels, histogram-based methods, mean, median, maximum, and minimum measurements, uniformity, entropy, skewness, and kurtosis. And you can see very nicely here the first order statistics and how you might think about them. We could talk about shape as compactness, 3D diameter, spherical disproportion, sphericity, surface area, surface to volume ratio, and volumes. It could be any of the above. Then we talk about second order statistics, which are really texture features, statistical relationships between voxels of similar contrast values, gray level co-occurrence matrix, gray level run level matrices. And then we talk about higher order statistics, where we impose filter grids to extract repetitive or non-repetitive patterns. With wavelengths, passes images through low or high pass filters in x, y, and z direction. We talk about different filters, Laplacian or Gaussian filters, where we can smooth the image or detect the edges and any sort of features. So you can look at it, this chart, the raw data comes in, you analyze the data, and then you have classification. And you can see it's simply this cl the clinical CT scans we do, which are then evaluated with feature extraction and shape and texture and filters to be able to get that raw data. And when you look at it in the pancreas, detection, classification, and prognosis are all possible. So with pancreatic cancer, we train the computer to be able to recognize normal pancreas and then cancer. We were able to find signatures to differentiate the two. 
We looked at initially almost 500 features, but then when you had 40 features for Random Forest Classifier, the accuracy was 99% with a sensitivity of 100% and specificity of over 98%. Those are indeed impressive numbers. The top five maximally relevant features included texture and shape and wavelengths. And just using five features, you had a very high accuracy. Obviously, 40 features, even better. And an article describing this was by Linda Chu in Suyin Park this past year, or just a few months ago. Some statements from that article. CT features of early pancreatic adenocarcinoma can be subtle and missed by even experienced radiologists. Early signs of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, such as parenchymal inhomogeneity, loss of normal fatty marbling, have been described in retrospect up to 34 months prior to the diagnosis of a carcinoma. Quantitative analysis of these imaging features allows the potential for computer-aided diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and earlier diagnosis. Also in this study, we aimed to differentiate normal from abnormal tissue with segmentation of the entire gland. And the results showed that after manual segmentation of the pancreas boundaries, the radiomics features with random forest classifier were highly accurate for distinguishing between a normal pancreas and a pancreas with pancreatic cancer with 99% accuracy. Given the high accuracy of the automated segmentation and algorithms, we believe this may help us with early detection of pancreatic cancer. There are some hurdles that need to be overcome, but we believe this will be a very important part of our imaging future. Now, again, there are always issues when you do radiomics. We did scans from a single institution, though they were over many years and many scanners, but it was one manufacturer and basically one protocol that was changed over time. What about different manufacturers, different slice thickness, different algorithms? All of those things are very valid points, and it's something we're beginning to work on. Now, it's not just pancreatic cancer, because radiomics have been used to classify pancreatic tumor versus pancreatitis, various solid masses, cystic masses, and to grade tumor. So we know when we look at pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, that typically hypervascular and adenocarcinoma is hypovascular. When you start looking at them with radiomics, neuroendocrine tumors have lower skewness, lower entropy, and higher uniformity compared to adenocarcinomas, which have higher skewness, higher entropy, and lower uniformity. There have been several articles published, differentiation of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor grades. Remember, grade two and three, everyone's gonna resect. Grade one, people may suggest to follow. And there's been a series of over uh, six or seven articles that make the point, different imaging techniques, different segmentation techniques, but we're able to really be good at predicting the grade of the patient's tumor. And there was just another article published in European Radiology, a comprehensive nomogram consisting of tumor margin and fusion radiomic signature as a tool to predict grade one and grade two or three neuroendocrine tumors preoperatively and assist with clinical decision making. So one of the things you have to realize from this article, strong discriminatory ability for histologic grading, arterial and portal venous phase imaging are complementary, and the comprehensive nomogram outperformed clinical factors 
in assisting therapy planning. So now not only detection, classification, and management. This becomes very, very important to us. Another article on texture analysis of neuroendocrine tumors, the inclusion by Gao and associates, our data indicates that texture parameters have potential in grading neuroendocrine tumors, and particularly grade one versus grade two and three. And here's one of those charts. So you can see now that we're not just talking about detecting lesions, now we're talking about distinguishing pancreatic adenocarcinoma from neuroendocrine tumor. And not just that, but determining the grade of the neuroendocrine tumor, and therefore determining specific management. We talk also about simple problems. We all know autoimmune pancreatitis sometimes is an easy diagnosis, sometimes it's really hard. IG4s are elevated, you gotta think about it, we've all gotten more experience, but there's so much of autoimmune pancreatitis that looks like pancreatic cancer. And we know that many patients go to surgery because it's the same history, weight loss, jaundice, elevated CA99, all sorts of things match older population. But when you look, at best, people are 70% accurate. That's when you really understand the process. But the fact is, we taught the computer, and the computer was 94% accurate. That is indeed impressive. Autoimmune pancreatitis was suspected or included in differential diagnosis in 47% of reports, but 95% of the time, the computer was able to say it was autoimmune pancreatitis. So again, a very important step for us in another of the clinical dilemmas we have. Now what about pancreatic cysts? Obviously pancreatic cysts, three to 5% of the population, so it's in a lot of CT scans. If you're gonna develop algorithms and computer programs for looking at the pancreas, it better have a way to deal with cysts and not just recognize them. With radiomics, it's been shown that you could look and distinguish specifically what cystic types are, MCN, cyst adenoma, pseudopapillary or spent tumors or cystic neuroendocrine tumors or IPMNs. Now, when you compare the uh, performance, and this is going back a couple years, the performance of the computer programs was better than an experienced radiologist. So, and now we're getting better with our own experience on computers, so it's surely gonna be better than radiologists. Article here, or a series of articles looking at differentiation of high grade versus low grade dysplasia and IPMNs. And these articles showed that CT with um, the, the radiomics was really good at making that prediction. Now, what other things can we do? Articles like this one by Chang, looking at predicting of outcomes of patients treated with chemotherapy. So can we not only determine what the lesion is, its aggressiveness, but now say what chemotherapy should be used and whether or not the patient's gonna do well. Pretreatment CT quantitative analysis of imaging biomarkers from texture analysis were associated with uh, progression-free survival and overall survival in patients with unresectable pancreatic cancer who were treated with chemotherapy, and the combination of pretreatment textual parameters and tumor size have the potential to perform better in survival models than imaging biomarkers alone. So again, there's no stone that's gonna be unturned. We're constantly be looking at these things, and in this texture mapping, you can see the things that we'll look at. Gray level intensity, standard deviation, entropy, mean of positive pixels, skewness, kurtosis, 
again, looking at all of the features. And this article by Cheng, again, instead of post-chemotherapy texture or parameters, pre-therapy imaging could provide more information about tumor biology. So again, tumor analysis as a non-invasive image processing tool has the potential to select patients with good prognosis before therapy, indicating a promising prospect of clinical applications in the future. So you can see it has the potential to change everything we do by predicting what not to do on patients or what to do. It would help us know what not chemotherapy to give, also what chemotherapy to give. And for patient survival, again, this could be very helpful in making decisions. I think it will be important for the patients. It's improving patient selection and critical in identifying patients most likely to benefit from surgical resection. And a number of publications have evaluated the utility of radiomics and pancreatic cancer from pretreatment CT in predicting survival. And again, one of the things you're going to see is not just going to be the imaging, but combining clinical features and pathological features and surgical features and putting these things together as an additive fashion to look at prognosis. So I think it's also important for radiology as we think about AI to think about how we work with our colleagues because the information that we provide is critical, but information they provide is critical. And it's only in the summary of the information are we really going to maximize our treatment in our patients. So that all sounds wonderful. There are current challenges. There's no standardization in image acquisition and post-processing protocol. Radiomics features can be potentially affected by technical parameters from acquisition to reconstruction, segmentation, feature extraction, statistical analysis. And so that is a problem. If we scan differently, can we only use this technique on a SEMA scanner or only on a G scanner and only on 0.75s rather than 3s? Well, if you have all these limitations, it's really going to harm the ability to use this in general practice. So the question is, how do we do that? Is there a way of getting around the problem? Well, there is hope. This one article by Cho was looking at lung nodules showing with different algorithms, high-res versus standard, the ability to extract information from the data set varied significantly. But what they did, and you can see on this chart, but what they did is they developed a way of changing the information into a common pathway that it may be possible to compare radiomics features from CT images with different reconstruction kernels using a novel CNN-based kernel conversion algorithm. And I think that's something that you are going to see because we need to be able to make certain that it works for every scanner and all parameters. Maybe one will be better, but there are a lot of different scanners and not every scanner is the same. So again, this idea about the strides that are being made in radiomics, a convolutional neural network-based kernel conversion algorithm improve the similarity of CT radiomics features obtained using different reconstruction kernels. So I think, again, very, very important. When you look at future directions of radiomics, standardization, large quality data sets are needed to be able to really test things well, multi-center trials to make sure if it works at Hopkins, it works at Mayo, it works at Cleveland Clinic, and it works at the hospital two miles away. And then, of course, we need to figure out ways of going from the uh, bench to the bedside. It needs to be in clinical use. Now, it's not just in pancreatic cancer, and I'll just make the point, Texture analysis, 
the potential in distinguishing benign from malignant adrenal nodules on CT. In this article, looking at texture analysis of GIST tumors, you're able to predict risk grade and mitosis index of a GIST tumor, and that demonstrated meaningful accuracy in preoperative stratification of GIST tumors. In this article by Young Choi made the point um, that this has an important way of changing how management will be done potentially, and this can be said to be true with every different tumor. And in this article, CT CTTA parameters such as MPP and kurtosis can be useful in predicting the risk and um, the grade of tumor and mitosis index. Texture analysis parameters demonstrated meaningful accuracy in preoperative diagnosis of tumor risk stratification and can be used as an imaging biomarker for determination of tumor grade. What makes all of this so exciting is that this is a regular CT scan. We read the scan, we try to stage the tumor, detect the tumor, but now that's only the beginning. Now we can analyze the tumor, predict what chemotherapy to give, predict response, and predict outcome. Again, it's not just CT. Here was PET of the brain with deep learning algorithms for predicting uh, Alzheimer's literally up to 75.8 months prior to final diagnosis. So important in that regard as well. In this deep learning model, um, again, very important to recognize some of the challenges with this, but the potential, whether it's MR or CT, whether it's body or brain, and the conclusion of that article, uh, deep learning algorithms can predict the final diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease from FDG PET with high accuracy and robustness across external test data. Indeed, very impressive. If you want to see the future, look at this work published by Google called Smiley. This was done in pathology. They taught the computers to read the path slides, okay? Very simple. And then what they did is they recognized what the pathologist liked and what they didn't like. So now you have not only the computer algorithms, but people looking at how to use the algorithms in clinical practice. And what they did was try to figure out what clinicians wanted, not just what researchers could do. And so what they found, what pathologists like to do is, look at this one feature. Give me more visual patterns like this. Show me similar images, but change it a little bit. That's like a radiologist. There's a mass in the pancreas. What is this mass? What could it be? Show me cases like it. Look at this filter. Show me this. Show me that. Now, what it showed also was when the pathologist had more control and it wasn't the computer just spitting out an answer, they were much happier with using the computer program. And that becomes very important. If you want people to use computer programs, they need to be trained with the user in mind. Um, our findings add to the body of evidence that sophisticated machine learning algorithms need to be paired with human-centered design and interactive tooling in order to be most useful. And that's a very good point, that you want to make certain that you have clinician buy-in. Now, how far this is all going to go? Now, clinicians may buy in, but is the computer going to read all the images? Eric Topol. The use of AI and deep learning subtype in particular has, enabled, has been enabled by the use of big data, along with markedly enhanced computing power and cloud storage. In medicine, this is beginning to have an impact at three levels. For clinicians, predominantly via rapid, accurate image interpretation, 
for health systems by improving workflow and the potential for reducing medical errors, and for patients by enabling them to process their own data to promote health. The second is the generation of data in massive quantities from sources such as high-res medical imaging, biosensors, and electronic medical records. Accordingly, at the same time that there is more dependence than ever on humans to provide healthcare, algorithms are desperately needed to help. So again, very important, we need to do better with challenge by higher and higher volumes, more and more data, more and more complexity, and recognizing the images have a lot more data. The CT scans have a lot more information than we've given them credit for. We need to have computers help us in this regard. Dan Rubin, there are some dangers, however, of unexpected negative consequences of AI on the radiology practice, even if these algorithms perform well. The first negative consequence is blind acceptance of the AI output. The AI algorithms are generally expected to be used to supplement, not replace radiologists who have the final decision. But if the AI algorithms get so good, then perhaps the radiologists would actually consider just believing the AI over what they think themselves. And that would be the beginning of the end of radiology if you don't use your own clinical judgment. But you can see the danger in this regard, particularly when the algorithms get really good. Dan Rubin, patients have concern that AI tools would produce restricted views with the wrong diagnosis, and they are scared that it will actually hurt their care. We know that over-reliance on technology and temptation to blindly accept AI outputs could affect also the training of future radiologists. So again, every part of what we do, the training, the learning, how our patients accept us, what we do, AI could change all of that. And if we're not careful, it may not be in the right way. A good summary, the pace of AI development is exploding. The number of AI tools being marketed to radiologists is accelerating, posing challenges for the radiologists to decide which tools to adopt and when to adopt them. The radiologist in imaging AI is to identify important clinical use cases for which these tools are needed. AI tools are expected to improve radiologist practice, but radiologists must guard against over-reliance on these technologies and the potential accompanying loss of clinical expertise. This could be Wally, the computers take over. Now, one thing is happening. There's going to be a lot of partnerships. You saw the Google and Mayo partnership. Everything is changing. This article, the real challenge is not to oppose the incorporation of AI into our professional lives, but to embrace the inevitable challenge of radiologic practice, incorporating AI into the radiology workflow. The most likely danger is that we'll do what computers tell us to do because we're awestruck by them and uh, trust them to make medical decisions when we don't have to. Now, it's interesting. This article was Harvard Business Report talking about AI can outperform doctors, so why don't patients trust it? I think in this article they said if the computer was as good as the doctor, would you trust the computer? The answer would be no. But if the computer was much better than the doctor, I think then you would say yes. But I think what patients wanted was the computer working with the doctor. And I think that's very important. 
Harnessing the full potential of these and other consumer-facing medical AI services will require that we first overcome patient skepticism of having an algorithm rather than a person making decisions about their care. But you know, we are developing more and more algorithms these days, how we treat patients, how we admit patients. Insurance companies determine what they pay for and when they pay for it based on algorithms. So I think it's a changing world. I think it's very exciting. Stephen Hawking gets the last word. Success in creating AI would be the biggest event in human history. Unfortunately, it might also be the last unless we learn how to avoid the risks. And I think we will learn. I think there's a lot of excitement with AI. When I go to RSNA this year, you'll expect to see every company have AI in big letters. I think Bill Gates, quote, you overestimate what's going to happen in two years and underestimate what's going to happen in 10 is always good to remember. But I think there's no doubt AI is here to stay and it's going to change how we practice. The key for us to embrace it, to model it, to help us, and to help us do better patient care. And with that, I thank you for your attention. And hopefully, when you listen to this, you'll be celebrating the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020. Have a great day and a great year. Bye-bye. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.